Does truth exist? Because you have faith, does that make this book true? Does God exist? So when someone says there is no truth, if you apply the claim to itself, what should you say? Is that true? They don't think Christianity is true. They're talked out of it. You know why they're talked out of it? Because they've never been talked into it. Cross-examining skeptical and atheistic views. Welcome to Cross-Examine with Dr. Frank Turek. Ladies and gentlemen, are you defending the faith or just your faith? The last podcast we did back on Friday, I was going through a essay or an essay by C.S. Lewis. It's actually a presentation he gave in 1945, and it's in the book God in the Dock. This is a book of essays put together uh, about seven or eight years after Lewis died. And uh, this particular presentation, which is now in written form in this book, God in the Dock, is called uh, Christian Apologetics. And we went through just a few pages of it on the last podcast. It's so profound, written, uh, gee, what is it now? It's coming up almost on 80 years ago now. What is it, 78 years or so ago, Lewis wrote this or said this, and then it's put in written form. And there's so many lessons for today. Lewis was way ahead of his time. Uh, And maybe this just is an illustration of what Solomon said so many years ago, there's nothing new under the sun. There's always going to be people who are going to claim to be Christians and not really adhere to the essential Christian doctrines. And that's what Lewis is saying here. As apologists, we have to defend the faith, not our faith. We have to defend the religion, not our religion. We have to defend the truth, not just our own preferences. And so often... We see people now claiming to be Christians who actually are jettisoning the essentials of the Christian faith. I think of the atonement, the resurrection, uh, the fact that Jesus, uh, that people are saved by faith uh, or by grace through faith. People are jettisoning these ideas and still claiming to be Christians. And Lewis has something to say about that. I'm going to pick it up right where we left off. So if you haven't listened to the first podcast, you might want to go back and listen to that because I'm right in the middle of the essay that, again, Lewis calls Christian apologetics. So let me just jump right in. Uh, Lewis says, as, as apologists, our business is to present that which is timeless, the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow in the particular language of our own age. The bad teacher does exactly the opposite. He takes the ideas of our own age and tricks them out in the traditional language of Christianity. Oh, check this out. He nailed this again. Think about it, ladies and gentlemen. What are the progressive Christians talking about? They're talking about love. They're talking about equality. They're talking about justice. These are all terms that come from Christianity. And yet they're redefining them. And they're trying to say that this is the way you ought to think about love. This is the way you ought to think about equality. This is the way you ought to think about justice. Not in the biblical way. We're going to take those words from the biblical worldview, and we're going to redefine them to fit our fashions that are going on now, or our preferences that we think are correct now. That is what's going on. That's why he says the bad preacher does exactly the opposite. He takes the ideas of our own age and tricks them out in the traditional language of Christianity. That's what people are doing. He said, your teaching as an apologist must be timeless in its heart and wear a modern dress. Does that make sense? 
Yes, we are going to adapt maybe our methods to reach people. That's where maybe the, the, you know, the guitars come in, as I said in the last session. We might not use the organ anymore. Maybe we're going to use the guitars and the drums and all that. That's just a method. But the message is the same. Your teaching must be timeless at heart and wear a modern dress. And then Lewis says this raises the question of theology and politics. And let me stop right here because I know a lot of people have said they've left the faith because, you know, evangelicals supported Trump. So how can Christianity be true? Of course, <laughs> they may not say it in those exact words, but they don't want to be associated with any, any worldview where people supported Trump, for example. Well, first of all, Trump is not an essential of the faith, quite obviously. <laughs> and um, the fact that people have certain make certain political choices given the fact that there are only two choices in a United States presidential election, two realistic choices. They have to go with one or the other. Um, that's just reality. You're going to have to line up behind, behind one or the other if you want to be engaged politically. And as I, by the way, as I looked at the, at the, uh, the two candidates in the last election, it wasn't really a choice of candidates, but a choice of platforms. And when you look at the platforms, I'm sorry, you, when you just look at the platforms, the Democratic platform has gone so far left, so unbiblical, that I can't see how any Christian supports this anymore. I, I, I don't get it. I'm not saying the Republicans are perfect. They're not. I just don't see how you can support uh, abortion on demand all the way up to the moment of conception. I don't see how you can support the literal mutilization of children for transgender ideology. I don't see how you can support the idea that um, Christians and even non-Christians have to be forced against their will to support LGBTQ affirming issues. I don't see where this is biblical at all. It's completely anti-biblical. And yet, people still want to support it. But let me see what Lewis says here. He says, the nearest I can get to a settlement of the frontier problem between them is this, between theology and politics. He says that theology teaches what ends are desirable and what means are lawful, while politics teaches what means are effective. Thus, theology tells us that every man ought to have a decent wage. Politics tells us what means this is likely to be attained. attained. So he's making the ends and means dis uh, distinction, ladies and gentlemen. And this is true when it comes to politics. Uh, we know what ends we're going for. The question is, what is the best means to get there? Now, let's go back to the last election. We know as Christians, we ought to be supporting uh, life. We know as Christians, we ought to be supporting traditional marriage. We know as Christians, we ought not be supporting the mutilization of children, that we ought to be protecting children from transgender ideology and these gender clinics, which are doing horrific things to children and many of them against the will of the parents, much less the child. We know we ought to be standing against that. That's the ends. The question is, what's the best means to get there? And when you look at the two parties, it's no wonder evangelicals voted for Trump. As much as the distasteful nature of Trump's personal behavior is, it's no wonder the policies that they supported were the policies that Trump supported. And this is what Lewis is saying. He's not talking about Trump and Biden, obviously. He's talking about the fact that politics is the means by which you're trying to get a certain end accomplished. 
And if you look at the platforms and you look at the policies, I don't blame Christians for supporting Trump. I, I voted for Trump. Okay. Now, would I have preferred somebody else in the primaries? Yeah, I voted for somebody else in the primaries. I agree. But once Trump was going, going up against Biden or Hillary, there was no other choice in my view. And this is what Lewis is saying. Theology tells us which of these means are consistent with justice and charity. On the political question, guidance comes not from revelation, but from natural prudence, knowledge of complicated facts and ripe experience. If we have these qualifications, we may, of course, state our political opinions, but then we must make it quite clear that we are giving our personal judgment and have no command from the Lord. Not many priests have these qualifications. Most political servants teach the congregation nothing except what newspapers are taken at the rectory. Now, things have changed in, uh, from Lewis's time. Obviously, in 1945, uh, at least England was completely behind, at this point, Winston Churchill. They weren't behind him maybe initially. Uh, they, were, they were going the appeasement route under Neville Chamberlain in about 1938-1939, and then when uh, Churchill came aboard, and Churchill said, I have nothing to offer you but blood, sweat, and tears, whatever he said, you know. <laughs> we will fight on the beaches. We will fight on the landing strip. You know, we'll fight everywhere, he said. Um, when that happened, then the people rallied around him. Uh, and there was no, as, as, as far as I can remember, uh, after the war got really got engaged, People rallied around Churchill, understandably so. They kicked him out after the war, by the way. But during the war, they said, you are our man. All right. Now, in our country today, the political parties couldn't be more different on many issues. There are some things they're the same on, unfortunately, like finances. Yeah, the Republicans say, oh, yeah, yeah, we're going to uh, we're going to be fiscal conservatives. No, you're not. You're spending just as much money as the Democrats are. You might be less fiscally crazy than the Democrats, but you're still doing crazy stuff as well. So you're not that much different when it comes to spending, but you are different on some of the moral issues. And that's where Christians have said, I can't vote. I can't vote for unlimited abortion. I can't vote for paying for abortion. I can't vote for child mutilation. I can't vote for uh, taking religious and political freedoms away. I can't vote for CRT or racist ways of trying to get rid of old racism you don't get rid of old racism with new racism that, that that's not the way forward i can't vote for any of that i'm sorry i can't do it i'll hold my nose and vote for the other side in any event lewis goes on and he starts talking here about here's what he says i find the uneducated englishman is an almost total skeptic about history he said, I expected he would disbelieve the Gospels because they contain miracles, but he really disbelieves them because they deal with things that happened 2,000 years ago. He would disbelieve equally in the Battle of Actum if he had heard of it. To those who have, uh, who have had our kind of education, his state of mind is very difficult to realize. So he's talking about, you know, he's, Lewis is a man of history. He's a man of the arts. He's a man of uh, of letters. He's a, he's, he knew five languages. I mean, he's talking about the average, uh, the average unaged, educated Englishman who thinks you can't know anything in the past. Um, but he goes on to say uh, that he has a very distrust of ancient texts, but his real religion is faith in science. This is what Lewis says. 
He goes on also to say this about people in his day. He says, a sense of sin is almost totally lacking. He says, our situation is thus very different from that of the apostles. The pagans to whom they preached were haunted by a sense of guilt. And to them, the gospel was therefore good news. Lewis says, we address people who have been trained. Get this. Oh, man, he's spot on here again. He says, we address people who have been trained to believe that whatever goes wrong in the world is someone else's fault. The capitalists, the governments, the Nazis, the generals, etc. They approach God himself as his judges. Stop right there. Stop right there. This is why the book is called God in the Dock, ladies and gentlemen. Because we're putting God in the dock of a courtroom and we're interrogating him. God, why is my life so hard? It's your fault. God, why didn't I, why don't I have a, a good wage? It's the capitalist's fault. God, why, uh, why are things going wrong for me in my life? It's the government's fault. It's my teacher's fault. It's the general's fault. It's somebody else's fault. It's not me, God, and it's your fault, ultimately. That's the way we think. They want to know whether... <laughs> Lewis says these, these people with the victim mentality, which is rampant in our culture. He says they, the victim mentality people, want to know not whether they can be acquitted for sin, but whether God can be acquitted for creating such a world. Bingo, that's progressive Christianity. That's it right there. It's God's fault. The God of the Bible's fault. That's why we don't believe in many of the essentials of the Christian faith. We'll just take what we like and we'll discard the rest and say the God of the Bible isn't the true God. In other words, we don't think God judges us. We judge God. That's what Lewis is saying here. He goes on to say, but whatever method we use, our continual effort must be to get their mind away from public affairs and crime and bring them down to brass tacks, to the whole network of spite, greed, envy, unfairness, and conceit in the lives of ordinary, decent people like ourselves and others. In other words, he's saying many people today, I'm not reading the whole essay because we don't have time, but Many people in his time and in our time think, well, you know, I'm not so bad. I don't murder people. You know, I, I don't, I, I, I pay my taxes. Uh, you know, I rape anybody. And Lewis says, all right, let's, let's get away from public affairs and crime. And let's get down to the fact that we individually are spiteful. We're greedy. We're envious. We're unfair. We're very conceited. We're just ordinary, decent people, so to speak. And we have all these problems. We need a savior. Then he goes through and he actually uses, he, he puts um, a bunch of religious words out there and he defines them as the common man understands them. Like, for example, atonement, here's what he says, does not really exist in, a spoken, in spoken modern English, though it would be recognized as a religious word. Insofar as it conveys any, conveys any meaning to the uneducated, I think it means compensation no one word will express to them what christians mean by atonement you must paraphrase so he's trying to say let's let's not use these 
these $10 words with people. If we do, let's define what they mean. At one mint, at atonement, to pay somebody's debt, to redeem somebody. That's what Jesus does for us. He pays the ransom. In his own words, Jesus said, I did not come to serve, or I did not come to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. This is John 10, 45, and he's, he says that elsewhere. He, um, he says, you must translate every bit of your theology into the vernacular. This is very troublesome, and it means that you can say very little in half an hour, but it is essential. It is also of the greatest service to your own thought. I have come to the conviction that if you cannot translate your thoughts into uneducated language, then your thoughts were confused. It's also been put this way, ladies and gentlemen. If you can't teach it to a first grader, you can't teach it. <laughs> you, you know, you've got to make it understandable to the common person. I try and do that to the best of my ability. I don't always succeed. But I need to understand it myself, quite obviously, before I can teach it. And I want to be able to communicate what, what I think is true, and hopefully I'm telling you what is true, uh, in common everyday language, using common everyday examples. He goes on to say, Lewis does, and first a word of encouragement, uneducated people are not irrational people. He says, I have found that they will endure and can follow quite a lot of sustained argumentation if you go slowly. Often, indeed, the novelty of it delights them. He says, do not attempt to water Christianity down. Amen, brother. Preach it, C.S. Lewis. There must be no pretense that you can have it with the supernatural left out. So far as I can see, Christianity is precisely the one religion from which the miraculous cannot be separated. You must frankly argue for supernaturalism from the very onset. Or from the very outset. Exactly. And that's why I always say the most, uh, the greatest miracle in the Bible is the first verse. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. If that verse is true, every other verse is at least possible. And the evidence from science, philosophy, and the scriptures themselves say that there was a beginning. That Genesis 1-1 does appear to be true. If Genesis 1-1 is true, then the miraculous certainly is possible. Every verse in the Bible is possible if Genesis 1-1 is true. I have no problem believing in the supernatural. In fact, if you think about this, we wouldn't be able to think if, it, if, there, was not, if there was nothing beyond the natural. If there was nothing beyond just molecules bumping into one another. Why? Because if materialism is true, if there is no supernatural, if everything can be explained by molecules bumping into one another, then why should I believe anything I think? Or why should you believe anything you think? Because every thought you have is a result of the laws of physics. In fact, we talked about this last time on the podcast when we had a question from an atheist about reason. Reason would not exist unless there was something beyond the natural Unless we had a mind and not just a brain, unless there were laws of logic, immaterial laws of logic, that our minds could access and use to discover truths about the world outside of our skulls, none of this would exist. 
unless there was something beyond the natural. So your very ability to think presupposes something supernatural. Now, it doesn't mean that miracles have occurred inside the universe. I, of course, think there have, but I'm simply saying your ability to think is something that isn't purely natural. Yes, in our modern, or I should say in our present state, our brains do affect our ability to think. However, that doesn't mean that there is no immaterial reality to your ability to think. There is. If it was just your brain and there was no mind, you shouldn't believe anything you think, but you can. Because you have the free will to follow the evidence where it leads. Wow. I could read this all day, ladies and gentlemen, but um, he says, do not attempt to water Christianity down. Let me just read this one last section here, and maybe we'll come back to it another time. Christianity says that God has done for man. It doesn't say because it doesn't know what he or has not done in other parts of the universe. So he's dealing with the, the question about, well, you know, are there people out there or other living forms out there elsewhere? Uh, oh, he says, <clears throat> some people will say that the people in the Bible believed in miracles in the old days because they didn't then know that they were contrary to the laws of nature. But Lewis says, no, they did. If St. Joseph didn't know what a virgin birth was contrary to nature, i.e. if he didn't know how the normal origin, or if he didn't know the normal origin of babies, why, on discovering his wife's pregnancy, was he minded to put her away? <laughs> Obviously, no event would be recorded as a wonder unless the recorders knew the natural order and saw that this was an exception. Indeed, there's no way to detect a miracle unless you know the backdrop of regular events. That's why miracles have to be rare to get our attention. If they happened all the time, we'd go, hey, this stuff happens all the time. It's no big deal. Miracles have to be rare, but they only can be detected against the backdrop of normal everyday events. Joseph would not be upset with Mary if people were conceived by, or if virgins conceived routinely. The only reason he was upset with Mary is because he never heard of a virgin conceiving. He knew that the way young girls got pregnant was through sexual intercourse with another man. And so that's why he's upset. <laughs> when he discovers, oh, no, that's not the way it happened, then that would be considered a miracle. They would not record it as a miracle, nor indeed record it at all. The very idea of miracle presupposes knowledge of the laws of nature, you can't have the idea of an exception until you have the idea of a rule. So there's so much more in this essay. Maybe we'll come back to it uh, at another time. But this is, again, from C.S. Lewis, God in the Dock. It's uh, a book you ought to get. It's Essays on Theology and Ethics. And this one is called Christian Apologetics. And there's nothing uh, in this that is... Uh, trendy or fashionable what's in here in this essay is the truth about what's happening in our culture and apparently what's happening in his that people were being taken away by trends in fashion and lewis is saying stop that defend the faith not your own preferences defend the religion not your religion defend the truth not what you want it to be all right ladies and gentlemen 
this week, by the way, I'm going to be down in Orlando uh, this weekend. Uh, let's see. That's going to be February. I'm going to be with Samaritan's Purse down there. Uh, in, on February 24th and 25th, Sharing Hope in Jesus' Name Conference. And then I'm going to be, that's uh, February 24th, 25th, then on Sunday at Stones Crossing Church in Greenwood, Indiana, Sunday morning services and Sunday night. We're going through I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist. Check all that out on our website uh, at crossexamine.org. Then I'll be at the Hope University class in Charlotte, North Carolina, February 28th. All the details are on our website, crossexamine.org. Just click on events. You'll see it there. And Lord willing, I will see you here next week. Oh, one more thing. Don't forget about the online CIA course. Sign up for it now uh, because we're going to fill that up. We only take 24 students in the online CIA course. It starts next month, uh, early March, mid-March, somewhere in there. Just go to crossexamine.org, click on online courses. You'll see it there, and I'll see you here next week. God bless.